Today on the Cameron Journal Podcast, I am privileged to be joined by Dr. Veronica Carey. She's the Assistant Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Drexel University College of Nursing and Health Professions, and she has written a new book called How to Avoid Pain While Seeking a College Degree, and um, it's an insightful guide to help empower people to do well in higher education, and as someone who has had a, a fun experience in higher education at all three levels this should be fun um so welcome to the cameron journal podcast well thank you for having me cameron and i cannot wait to hear about those three levels of fun that you've experienced (laughs) well before we get into my boring stories why don't you tell us about yourself (laughs) and about the book Okay, so as you mentioned, I am the Assistant Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And for a while there, our university likes the word and. And for a while there, I was also and student affairs director, um, as well as I'm an associate clinical professor. So Cameron, in those roles, I was consistently talking to students, whether they were in class or they were making appointments with me. I do something called coffee breaks, 30 minutes, undivided attention, what's going on? So whether it was a coffee break, face-to-face after class, or just popping in my office, I was noticing that I'm kind of on to something that students were showing me that they're literally in pain trying to get this degree. And what I mean by in pain is that they were enduring a lot of stuff. And I'm like, you don't have to endure this stuff to get a degree. They're not synonymous. And what I, you know, we'll talk a little bit later about what I call the four E's, but one of them is that, you know, they're kind of acculturated to think that way. We did that to them, you know, you know, try hard, buckle down, you know, so they think crying three times a week is synonymous with getting a diploma in high school, you know, or, or not wanting to leave your dorm room is synonymous with trying to get a degree at college. So when I started to see this and then realizing these are tuition paying individuals that we gave this great title of student to, and then we keep them in pain for four years. And I said, enough is enough. And probably because of my teaching, which is my expertise, quote unquote, is in psychiatric rehabilitation. So this book, Frame Your Degree, How to Avoid Pain While Seeking a College Degree, dovetails between my rehabilitation and behavioral health knowledge and the uh, sort of articulation of what students go through to get a high school diploma and a college degree. So this book is really framed around, no pun intended, but it's framed around that sweet spot of a junior, senior in high school, first year, second year college student. The, the, the years where we have these individuals, Cameron, being so autonomous that we send them out without coping skills and strategies. So this book dovetails what's what's missing. No, I think that's that's fantastic. And um, why don't we, since you mentioned them already, why don't we jump right into the four E's? And, absolutely, and, absolutely. And, yes, and, and this is a great way that. to start. Yeah, thank you. This is a great way to start because this is how we were all reared. And you can think of your own, I'd like to hear your own examples. So the first thing we do with our children is the first E is called expectations. We lay them on them. You know, whether we maybe we're raised by parents or parental entities where we're like, oh, I'm not going to duplicate how much pressure my mom and dad put on me. I'm not going to do that to my children. And then you say things like, hey, 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 make sure that you do your best today or they come back from school. How was school today? 
Did you, uh, what, did you have a quiz? How did you do? So the pressure still comes on, you know, students are still kind of feeling their, you know, they, like they kind of wrap themselves around themselves, shoulders first, right? So whenever you see a young child doing this, it's anxiety, right? You're doing something to me that I want to just envelop myself. And we do this from the time they can pretty much understand us to the time that we give them this big event at the age of 16. And we say things to them like, you know, college is going to be difficult. So make sure you get good grades from now forward because you want to get into a good school. So even if you said that once, it's going to linger. And that's what I mean by expectations. And each child has their own expectation history, but they still have them. Then the second E is evaluation. That's when Cameron, a person looks side to side and says, am I as good as that person? Am I tall enough, short enough, big enough, small enough, pretty enough, ugly enough, homely enough, hairy enough? They start going through all these things, but most of them are predicated on, well, what do you expect from me? Do you want me to be nice? Well, am I as nice as this person is? You want me to be um, social? Well, do I have as many friends as this person does? So students start to evaluate and they start doing that early, like elementary school, and it keeps growing and growing and growing. The third E is education. Well, let's see, we spend eight hours a day there. Huh. Eight hours a day away from our parents for the first time since kindergarten, first grade through 12th. And we start. we take the expectations with us every single morning. We pack them in our lunch boxes. We take the evaluation straight to class. Someone comes in, oh my God, her shirt is so nice. Mine is not as nice as hers. Oh my God, her hair looks so nice. Oh, I should have done my hair like that. And then we go, oh yeah, we're in class. We're supposed to be paying attention, right? So those three main things is sort of like the halo over every student. Doesn't matter the culture, doesn't matter whether they're non-binary, gender, you know, however they uh, self-identify. Everyone has their own three E's. The last E is endurance. And that's what you see, 16 to 18, 18 to 20. They endure because they want to get that diploma behind their head. They want to hang it on their Zoom meetings. They want everyone to know they graduate. They want to get, and think about this, Cameron. You are raised by a parental entity to your 15. Then there's this big event when you turn 16. 16, whatever, whatever that was. Then somebody gives you this 2,000, lets you borrow this 2,000 pound vehicle and sends you out into the world in it. And you're like, okay. And then the next thing you know, you're graduating and they go, do your best. Can't wait. Make your, make your parents proud. And they've only been autonomous for two years. Two years. And we think that they should have learned all the life skills they need to be away from us. First year of school, first time with a credit card. First time, maybe trying to figure out whether I should party on Thursday night when I have class on Friday. First time trying to figure out what I should eat or not eat, if I should drink or not drink. It's the first time for some of these students away from parents that are going to check on them when they come back from the party or check on them the next day to make sure the car's not dented. This is the first time they're away doing that. And we wonder why I do, I have this thing called academic bricks on shoulders. We wonder why they endure. Maybe there's a student who gets called the N-word and they're not going to call their parents back and say, hey, I was called the N-word because they know their mom and dad might be working, working extra positions to keep me in school. Brick, right? Maybe they got a poor grade and they don't know how to tell their parents because, oh my gosh, how am I going to tell my mom and dad I'm failing when they work so hard? Brick. And these bricks just weigh students down. 
So that's the important thing to think about that once we meet them at 16, 17, 18, 19, they're this constellation of these four E's and that's who's sitting before you in class. That, yes. <clears throat> I mean, I think that describes the situation um, very well. We, when I was an undergrad, I got, I was in student government and I got pulled into a committee um, because we had a problem um, in our freshman classes. We had a 50% dropout rate after the first semester. Now, bear mm -hmm. in mind, I went to the second tier state school in my state. I did not go to the University of Colorado. I did not go to Colorado State University. I was okay. at the University of Northern Colorado. I was in the B team. Mm -hmm. And so we had a lot of students who maybe college really wasn't for them they went because their parents wanted them to that especially people my age that was the expectation i'm 35 so i was class of 2006 um and so uh and but we had this kind of 50 percent dropout rate and so we went to study to figure out what we needed to bring that down because it was an accreditation thing they were unhappy with us all this type of thing and so, um, you know, like you need to fix your acceptance rate or change your all this type of thing. So we're lots of meetings where we're meeting, meetings, meetings, meetings. And um, and and it really, it really was all the stuff that you mentioned, you know. Um, and not that I obviously had a chance to benefit from it, but in the years since then, mm -hmm. it's the support offered to freshmen now is so much better than it was back then that now that that rate has gone way down i think they have kind of changed some admission standards and all this type of thing um but they have increased that support um and i think that is so important because there are so many so many factors in involved and I, especially when you come to the social stuff i mm -hmm. that's true i think i helped raise my cousins and i know that there that was dealing with you know the partying and the responsibility and all that type of thing was hard enough and they went to public school and already been doing that in high school i grew mm -hmm. up very religious with strict parents mm -hmm. so i hadn't been in the same room with alcohol till i was 18 years old mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. i remember mm -hmm. when i was about to turn 21 my dad pulled out a bottle of whiskey and said i've been waiting for you to turn 21 for 20 years and poured out a <laughs> and so um like because my parents didn't drink you know they didn't drink all this type of thing we go very religious you know at southern baptist all this type of thing and so um so that was you know i had barely smoked marijuana and never really been in the room with alcohol had never been to a house party all this type of thing and so for me it was a whole coming out of christian schools and all this type of thing it was a whole new world <laughs> uh -huh. and um yeah, there was lots of, um, you know, uh, partying in opportune moments and on days uh -huh. of the week when I look back and I'm kind of like, why on earth are you getting wasted on a Tuesday? Like, this makes no sense. Um, <laughs> but in my 18, 19 year old brain made perfect sense. Um, yes, yes. And, yes. And so I think I think it is. And if it is one thing I think I've seen change with my friends who now have college age kids and I have several um because uh -huh. i had a lot of friends who had kids young so they're all in their 40s and their kids are college age now um wow. is wow. that uh the the expectations are so different now uh -huh. Uh -huh. um but they're still there they, they are still there but i they're 
different. They seem kinder. I don't know if that's how the kids experience them. They seem mm -hmm. kinder than what our parents asked of us. Like for me right. going to college, that was not something I was ever consulted about. That was mm -hmm. never a question. That was just the natural progression of what one was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Um when I was 18, I wanted to move to New York City and go to interior design school. And that was not an option, since why I have two degrees in political science and a degree in, in fine arts and creative writing. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so that was, you know, but I feel like it is a big, and I feel like this whole talk about mental health and mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'll get, oh, don't worry, this is leading to a question. This is a journey. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I don't like. There's all this talk about mental health now, and that's so much more of a priority. We were not having those conversations back in 2006 in the Dark Ages. Um, all this type of thing. It seems like there's, you know, even gap years and alternative ways to mm. get to that goal. There seems to be so many more options now. Is that, like, from your perspective, does it, have we kind of changed and modulated for Gen Z the type of flexibility that was not given to us millennials? Every... I guarantee you, when the Gen Zs become parents, they're going to have stories about how they were raised, I guarantee you. Because yes. every generation is going to say, you know, I had to walk 10 miles in the snow with no shoes to get to school. You know, I had to go to Sunday school every, I'm not doing it. So what parents do to make it seem kinder is they preface it with that. You know, when I was younger, your pop-pop used to make me sit down and do his homework right in front of him. And your mom-mom would, would grade your homework, would correct our homework in pen. So if we messed up, we had to do it all over again. I would never do that to you. You see, they right. preface it and then they still give an expectation. So I'm going to let you do your homework at your leisure as long as you get it all done. And then at the end of the month, if I get a report that says, then I'm going to have to pull back on some of that. You see, I'm still telling you. And a little bit of what your pop-pop and mom or that person's mom and dad did is still true. You can't escape it. Even if yeah. you try not to be it, it's still there, right? So that's how it sounds kinder, right? As an example. Yeah. But I guarantee you this Gen Z is going to have something to complain about in, in 15 years. They're just going to, you know, yeah, well, they I might mean, even say my mom and dad were so lenient. Nobody ever checked on me. You know, it's, it's a miracle. I passed school. It's going to be something. Right. Yeah. But, um, and we'll get into those top 10 pain points that I've been researching about, which is the bulk of the book, because what's the point of knowing about the pain points and not having a strategy? So, you know, as a certified, yes, I, psychi I'm sorry. <clears throat> No, I was gonna say I, I definitely I definitely want to get into that. I want to find out because my next mm -hmm. kind of question is, um, you know, how do we help students be more successful in right. in higher ed? And I and I'm going right. to bore you with another long story. I'm going to try to keep Good. it short because I I have three very unique experiences of higher ed. <clears throat> so, experience number one was an undergrad. It was very traditional. Lived in the dorms, but I did my undergrad degree in two and a half years. I took if there if classes were being offered, I was taking classes, summers, winters, all this type of thing. Um, and uh um, and so I, you know, kind of burnt through it. And I also, you know, I didn't, I was not, not that I didn't have, but I wasn't given the financial resources to really like live independently on my own. So I wanted to get done, get out so I could get a job. Now, here's the bad part. I graduated in 2009. There were no jobs. <laughs> Yes. So my, my, um, my plan did not go according to plan. Um, 
So I um, was, I was freelancing and writing and doing marketing, which would lead to the bulk of my career later on. Um, and I got to go run this publication and all this type of thing. And, um, and so I, but I went to grad school because I had this idea, I want to go to law school and do international law and work in Brussels at the International Court of Justice. Wow. Very so, specific niche. Yes. And so I went to Norwich University and did their mostly online with a residency at the end, low residency online international relations program. I specialized in terrorism and asymmetrical warfare. I was the first class of that concentration um to come out with that um and uh and that the difference between undergrad and grad school number one was the level of support my undergrad program did not prepare me for my graduate program mm. at all <clears throat> it was a disaster i our the political science program i went to as an undergrad was very philosophy based not policy based so uh -huh. when i went to grad school and they're talking about policy and i'm quoting philosophers it my first quarter did not go well and the <laughs> only reason i passed is because and i and harold kersley i i said this at graduation i say it every time he is the whole reason i graduated because he sat me down and taught me how to write for that program and basically was like dump everything you've learned in undergrad and let's start over but mm. that level of support was just insane like i mm. And, and but it was so good and it got me through and I met all these wonderful people, some of whom I'm still friends with and this great alumni network. And it's just it's fantastic. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so when I went to get my MFA finally during the pandemic and I had resisted getting an MFA by this time, I'd published three books and been published in a journal. I had run two more publications. I started the Cameron Journal. I started this very podcast, all this type of thing. Um. And I had, you know, worked in another magazine, worked in fashion, and I had covered major museum exhibitions and all this type of thing. Um, and I finally decided to break down my MFA so I could teach if I needed to and and work in publishing, which I now do, and all this type of thing. Um, I expected that level of support. Mm. I did not get it in any capacity. Mm. Um, my first week, I sat down with the program director. I said, I don't know if this is for me. I don't know why I'm here. I of of the five people in my informational, well, I was the only one that was accepted that wasn't already accepted into the program. I'm like, I don't know why you picked me. Um, all this type <laughs> of thing. And rather than getting support and resources, I was basically told, well, you can stay if you want to, or you can just drop out. Like every somebody always drops out the first week. Mm, mm. And and I I contacted my dear friend Liz Williams in the UK, who has been so wonderful me in every way and i contacted her and i said how the hell did you get through your phd i don't know if i can do this and she said i just decided that i had to do it through force of will and bloody mindedness sheer bloody mindedness as she put it very british sheer bloody mindedness <laughs> and i said okay i'm gonna have to take this on myself no one's gonna support me but me and i endured a terrible advisor my very nice program director thought another e another e enduring yes. Yes, my lovely program director, who is from Vermont, thought the new Black student should go with the Black advisor. That did not end well. Um, and, and she hated my project with, you know, all this type of thing. And um, and so I moved to a different advisor. He at one point told me, I don't know why you picked me as your advisor two semesters in a row. You should just drop out. Um, 
yeah, he literally said that to my face, <laughs> like, you know, sort of thing. Um, my last advisor was genuinely shocked. I actually ended up speaking with the assistant dean about that. And he's like, no student should ever be told that at this institution. I'm like, well, you have a problem then. Because mm-hmm. um, this has not that. gone well. Yeah. And it's like, so I basically, I did it. I just endured through sheer force of will. I decided I am going to get an MFA and I'm not going to let any of you stop me to do it. And I will do whatever it takes. And I... Mm-hmm. I am, I graduated in February and I am still physically recovering from it. Yes. Now I met a lot of great people along the way. I met a lot of great new friends along the way. It is one of the best things I've ever done. It has unlocked and opened doors for me. It was exactly what I needed to do in my early thirties. It was Mm -hmm. the degree that I needed. I have a terminal degree. I can now teach grad school if I want to. Fantastic. Yes, Yes, you In each of those situations, and this is where we get back to your book, mm-hmm. I feel like, and I don't know if this is how what you found, it shouldn't have had to have been this hard. <laughs> exactly. You don't, this is my subtitle, how to yeah. avoid pain while seeking a college degree, because I guarantee you that's like a bootstrap scenario to me, right? You know, right. pull yourself up by your bootstraps, Cameron, you can do it. Okay. That guy put you down, whatever. Brick. Yeah. Next person. You should have dropped out. Brick, brick. You know, and next thing you know, you're underwater. You're under the wall and it's heavy. It's heavy. Yes. And that's why, even though you graduated, it's still the weight. Your shoulders have muscle memory, right? All that pain, you're still carrying it around. You know, yeah. Anything and for those happen- not watching, I'm not a small dude. I have big shoulders. I'm six foot. My father is six, seven, and broader shoulders than me. And it's, it is still a burden. <laughs> exactly exactly and it doesn't matter about your frame right again we're talking about frame your degree but it doesn't matter about your frame it's i mean mine's a little bit narrow i don't tend to have very wide shoulders i'm a very very tall i'm 511 so i'm almost six feet i could join your family Um, i'm the shortest (laughs) child my oldest brother is six seven then six five my sister six one and then i'm 511 so there you have it yeah but the idea being that it doesn't matter about the frame it's about the weight and what is that to me? How much can I bear? And some people can only take two or three bricks and they start drinking or smoking something or trying something different for the first time, popping something they never popped before. Someone else might be able to get up to seven or eight bricks before they decide, you know, this is not for me. I'm just going to quit. You know, and wait, wait, it's, it's no, as, an, as an undergrad, there was what I like to call the straight white male circle jerk at the front of the room. There was about five or six straight white dudes that were all best friends, with all the professors. I only made friends with one professor along the way. Um, and they were, you know, were always staying after class, all this type of thing. And I, I was only one of five people of color in my program. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I all, call that I, two and 50. That's one of my 10, but we will get to that. Yeah. And I, I never, um, I never kind of felt welcome in that space. I always felt like an outsider. And I, I that's probably mm-hmm. on me. You know, I could have probably taken more initiative and all that type of thing. But it just, it, it didn't seem like that's where I belong sort of thing. And mm-hmm. I, I looked at all the ways in which faculty and staff were engaging with other students in the program. And I'm like, I've never gotten any of that. And I realized- Do you I hear realized, the evaluation? Do you hear the evaluation? Yeah, I mean- Side I, to side, I, right? They yeah, get it, I, mean, I, I didn't get it. Yeah, and, and I realized like there was only 450 students of color on our, on our whole campus of 10,000, because Colorado, um, and you know, and I realized there was only five of us in the whole in the whole program. But it's like I'm looking at all the you know 
help and assistance and support that they're getting. And I'm getting that. And brought, we had a broader conversation about the support and help that the athletes were getting, like getting their schedules done for them, getting first priority for classes, all this type of thing. We're all sitting over here being like, none of the rest of us get that. What's happening over there? Like, you know, all this type of thing. And, it's like, and it was just like, oh my God, what, what would I have been able to do if mm -hmm. I'd had those types of resources, even as just an undergrad? And so, yeah, I didn't sleep more than five hours a night for two and a half years. I right. partied hardy and my only release valve, valve was drinking way too much, doing a metric fuck ton of drugs. I've written about this, so we're not really any new information. Um, you know, doing a metric fuck ton of drugs and, and just kind of, you know, and just kind of floating through and really- right white knuckling right. it until graduation Absolutely. and so so I've had like one like my undergrad was okay my first graduate mm -hmm. degree was like how I feel higher education should be and my last one was just when I wrote my final report project I had to do a review of the program for my thesis project I was not kind mm -hmm. and I was just like, like, you know, yes, I'm pulling the angry black man card. Like, yeah, like, mm, it, like mm. I was not kind to of be kind of like, no one should have right. to go through what I went through. No one should be in pain to get a degree. Yeah. And it's, and I, but I feel like, you know, mm -hmm. I was able to get through because I, I had friends, I had mm -hmm. family, I decided I was going to do it and I did whatever it took. I have to say, and this is no judgment most people wouldn't do that right exactly they or they try right yes. they may not be successful and right? it's just exactly. not tenable and they end up leaving mm -hmm. their program that's right and so that's so right. this so returning this to you now that we've bored my i bored you with two long stories about me <laughs> getting back to you let's talk about those 10 things what how can sure. we help kids be successful in higher education what do we do let me list these out for you. And what I want you to do is make a mental note of when I mention something that applies to you, I want you to remember it and count them because there's going to be 10. Right. And this is what I do with the students. I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of students since the book came out this past June. And I ask them the same question every time I show them the list of 10. And I say, do not tell me which ones apply to you. Just tell me how many. Mm -hmm. I have yet... I have yet, that I can say with my hand straight up to Christ, I have yet to have a student say zero. All right, you ready? Yeah. Yep. One of them is an IEP or an accommodation, right? So we know what, what those are, right? An individual education plan from kindergarten to high school at any juncture there, or an accommodation when you're in college. What are they for to help me be successful from point A to point Z? That's what accommodations are for. Another, now again, think about this. These are not pain points because you have an accommodation. These are all pain, I call them the top 10 academic bullying pain points. That means someone made you feel poorly because you have one of these 10 or more. Okay, so be thinking about it that way. It's the top 10 academic bullying. Number one, not in any hierarchy, but we already talked about accommodations. The next one is maybe you're an underrepresented person, right? Maybe there's, um, you know, there aren't that many individuals who are six feet tall, or maybe there aren't that many people that are from Colorado, or maybe there's not many people that are in a wheelchair. So for whatever it is, you're underrepresented. That's number, that's a, another one. 
Another one is when you have a behavioral health diagnosis. So that can also be something that people, if they found out or if, they sh if you show symptoms or signs of something that they're going to bully you over or tease you about. There's something called two and 50. Two and 50 is when you told me that story, when you said there's only this many persons of color in my school. I can relate to that. My brother and I are a year and a half apart. We're 18 months apart because we're Irish twins. We're 18 months apart. And we were the only persons of color in the entire elementary school, not our grades, the building. So if I left, if I went home sick or something or didn't go in that day, he was the only one of color in the entire building. So that's that premise of two and 50, meaning a class of 50 students and 48 people are dissimilar to you. So what do you do? If you're first in class, you sit there and go, and maybe you have this, again, think about it if it applies to you. It certainly applies to me, Cameron. Oh my God, I hope somebody else black shows in here. I self-identify as African-American. Oh my God, am I the only going to be the only Negro in this class? Lord Jesus. Oh, there's one. Thank oh, you, Lord. In college, we literally all sat together out of solidarity. <laughs> like, we okay, just always so sat you know together in a group. One. Like, yeah. So now, you know, so now you know you can count that one. The other ones quickly are first-generation students, right? Not none, Neither one of your parental entities has a four-year degree. First, that's the definition of first-generation. Maybe there's an international student or you're an athlete or there's food insecurities, right? I think I'm looking at my list real fast, make sure I don't, oh, LGBTQIA plus community, um, racism, micro and macro aggression, micro and macro aggressions. And then the 10th one is a visible or invisible disability. So I mentioned 10 categories for which I, I researched as the top 10. Now, how did I research them? by listening to students coming in my office for year after year after year. And I'm like, I am on to something. They're talking about pretty much the same things. You know, these are the same things that are bothering them. So Cameron, out of that 10, what number applies to you? For those not listening on YouTube, it's seven. Okay. You see <laughs> that? I, I had or had, because I'm also autistic, which I, I actually got diagnosed the day before I started my MFA. That was fun. Um, Isn't that something? Well, that's a late yeah. diagnosis for autism. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I was, Absolutely. I was late diagnosed. Yeah, it was a whole, it was a whole journey. Continues to be we, a journey. We, we actually call that a latent. I shouldn't say late. It was a latent diagnosis because usually it's captured when you're much younger, right? So it's, we yes. call that a latent. But the idea being, you should not have to endure seven of these intersections, if you will, to get a degree. But in, but you did, and you had to. And your first time, you said you got through in two and a half years, but there was a lot of like self-medicating going on to get through those moments when you had maybe high anxiety or trauma, or maybe you're being stigmatized or what, whatever one of the two or three or four hit you on that particular day. Yeah. This is what I try to make educators realize. Students are not single entities, Cameron. They are constellations. They're Veronica Carey is sitting in class but she's also three of the intersections on the list or five of the intersections on the list. So, and that's just Veronica. Here's Cameron, seven of the intersections. Here's Joe, 15, you know, so it's like, what is happening is that professors want to say, or teachers in, in school want to be able to say, but they all had the same material. They all had the same PowerPoint. They all had the same assignment. They all had the same quiz. And I come behind them and say, and they're not all the same student. They didn't have the same day. They didn't listen to you the same way. Yeah. Maybe you as a faculty said something like, oh, we're not going to worry about those people today. And you're like, 
Did they just say those? Did she just say or he just say those people? I'm those people. So what are you doing? You're perseverating, right? You're thinking about that for minutes and minutes and minutes. You're not paying attention. So I've given strategy called the first five words. Hmm. Now, we're not going to be anal about it. It could be four words. It could be 10 words. But the idea is, if you know yourself, and I have this, this um, saying in my book, if you don't know who you are, someone else will tell you who you are and treat you accordingly, right? If you don't know who you are, someone's going to tell you who you are and treat you accordingly. So if they think that I'm not as bright because maybe I'm not of the predominant culture or race in the classroom, maybe this faculty doesn't call on me that much. Or maybe if I put my hand up, why is everybody behind me always the one chosen? I'm recognizing it. I realize that it's happening. Brick on shoulder. I don't want to go to that class. I don't want to talk to that faculty. And they even said something like those people. I'll give you an example of a story. Now, what's the blessing, though, Cameron, is that these stories come to me. And in the book, I have a privacy statement that says, Everything's been redacted, so no one can say, this is me, Dr. Carey, use my story. I change everything around about it, but they're actual incidences where I had students come to me and say, Dr. Carey, this faculty member, every time this person teaches the class, yes, and there's and these were uh, three African-American female students. I'm like, yes, but don't forget the university where I am is predominantly white, okay? Now, don't forget, Cameron, people of color don't have revelations that there's going to be more whites when you say it's a predominantly white institution. They just don't expect to be belittled because they're not white, right? So they're sitting in class, and every time the faculty would show a video that had someone of color, faculty would stare down those three black students. Now, they already feel othered. They're already two and 50, even though it was three of them. They're already two and 50. They're already sitting together, like you said, out of solidarity. And then the faculty would zoom in on them. So now they're othered. So now the 47 other in the class are going, hmm, hmm, every time. So I said, okay, let me go talk to those students thought I was going to take my earrings off and go and get that faculty. But I went over to the faculty and I said, what kind of goes through your head when you're doing that? Because I find, Cameron, students don't have time to lie about faculty or teachers. They really don't. You know, they may embellish, but they just don't make something up. And so I came in and I asked the faculty, oh, yes, I absolutely do look at them when that happened, when, I, when someone, you know, why do you do that faculty? And the person said, I want them to know my video was diverse. Okay, they can see, they can see. You don't need to get keep getting your own little, you know, little pat on the back every 17 minutes in this video. But what were the students doing, Cameron? They were taking the brick and leaving the class with it. Don't forget the persons who laid the bricks on you go home scot-free. Have you ever had a conversation where you go, I mean, an incident where you go, why did I say that? Or why didn't I say that? Or I had nothing. I just walked away. But when are you having that conversation away from the incident? Yeah. So I said to the students, when this person does this, what do you do? And they said, nothing. I said, we're going to start changing that. You need to start speaking up for yourself. Let's think about what could be your first five words. And then that's just sort of how it was born. What could be your first five words that you could say when that kind of thing happens in class? And then maybe it's appropriate for another incident. The same five words may be applicable, but as the students understand there's seven, like for you, intersections, maybe the same five words don't work for every time, every scenario. Maybe they have a cadre of three or four arsenal of first five words, 
But until they had this book, until they thought about the book, until I put it out there, they would just keep layering and layering and layering until I see sadness, anxiety, depression, leave of absence, suicidality. Um, people were being put on medication to be you know, successful in school. That's what I mean by the endurance. Students will do a lot of things to be successful and they don't have to. So the first five words is a strategy that is woven throughout each chapter to say, what would you say if? You're a first-generation student. Someone goes, nobody in your family passed? Look at this disdain on my face. Nobody has a degree? What are you going to say? Because they're going to go home fine, and you're going to go home with a brick if you don't say something. And what I found is that when I do this as a sort of an auditorium kind of moment, oh, you should see the hands fly up. Mm, I know what I would say. I'm like, okay, good. Say it, as long as you're not cussing me out. Say it and remember it. Because I guarantee you, if it came to you, you're going to need it. Students are like, you know what? Dr. Carey, this happened to me yesterday. And someone goes, I, so then I go, okay, you say your scenario. You give them the first five words. And they love it. They love it because they're like, no one's ever told me that I can come back at a faculty. I know I can do a peer. Can I do a peer in class? No one ever told me that. I'm two and 50. I'm already standing out. Or I'm an athlete and I don't want to make waves. I don't want my coach to be mad at me. But now they, they, but now they realize, yes, you can. And this book you know, gives you I, I had a great moment. I, we were doing American political philosophy and um and we there were discussion somehow discussion of slavery came up in this very and I have to say he's nice and kind because I don't think he was malicious. I think he was just kind of ignorant. Um and and he made this and I, I'll remember forget how he put it. He said, and I, I'm quoting now. But wasn't slavery good because it built America? And you would have laughed because the four other Black kids in the class all snapped towards me and the message was clear. Cameron, say something brilliant now. And I did, and I tried not to shame him, but it ended. we ended up actually having this sort of discussion after class of, because the faculty, he actually laughed, which didn't feel great. And so we actually had this discussion of how to talk about this in a way that didn't make all of us necessarily feel so terrible. And May so, I ask if you can yeah. recall what might have been your first five words? Could have been six or seven or three, but what do you, what was your first way of entering into that conversation? Do you remember? I'm sure you, you have to paraphrase, but. Yeah, I I don't remember exactly what I said, but I believe I started with the I get where you're coming from with the whole America is good sort of thing. But the mm. reality is that your good country was built on the backs of victims. Mm, there we go. And so and that's probably like nine words. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so we, so it was something where, and I had to come up with that in seconds. Uh, like it was, it was that sort of thing, kind of like, like, yeah, I see where you're coming from, but there's another half to that story sort of thing. And, and it was, it, but it, the sad, here's the sad thing. If the four of us hadn't been sitting there, and I think particularly if I hadn't been sitting there because no one else really wanted to take that on, mm -hmm. that would have gone by without so much as a by your leave. That's right. You know, if we That's hadn't correct. showed up to class, that would have just been considered perfectly normal and valid discussion. Now, obviously, We've come a long way since 2008 when that happened. Today in 2023, that interaction mm -hmm. would have go down differently. Right. 
But back right. then, that would have would have been a normal conversation. And if there had been no people of color in the room, it, we would have just moved on. They would have just That's moved right. on. And we're like, well, mm-hmm. yes, no, but slavery is still morally terrible and hurted it. And then just kind of gone on with it because it's not something that affects us in the history, in the genome of any of them. It was an institution that affected any of them sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. And uh, and that that makes, you know, and there's all sorts of those moments mm-hmm. when you're from certain backgrounds, certain identities, whatever have you in college, where and I and I don't and I'm not one to limit freedom of speech, not have free inquiry. That's the foundation of the university system. But when you are that person, particularly in mm. our society, um, mm. I totally get where you're coming from by saying, yeah, you need to have preloaded, ready to go. Yes. What you want to say and at least make yourself heard because then you're a part of the conversation. Then you're a part of the dialogue. And, and you get to that, shed. You get to shed. Yes. Because the persons who are delivering it are not going home with a brick. Right. That faculty member, I guarantee you, was not the first time that faculty member said that. It just might have been the first time they were challenged. That person planned on saying it and going back to their car and going home. Yes. And it was it was funny because like the 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 discussion we had after class, he definitely acted like this was a novel problem he'd never faced before. And I'm like, well, that just tells me how many students of color you haven't had in your classes, you know, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and in, in political science, the field is very white. You'll be, you know pressed to find a person you know a lot of these programs Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. you know it took us a long time to get a secretary of state that was you know sort of you know and and you know it it took us a long time to get them you'll you'll be pressed to find to find people calling those programs anyway and so it's a difficult it's a difficult thing but that's so you know Mm. when those interactions happen when those things happen it is so good that is a wonderful piece of advice to have preloaded exactly think about them now you wanted interact with right. that moment and sometimes it may be the chapter on accommodations or iep doesn't apply to you but perhaps you meet someone who you need to advocate for maybe it's going to be your roommate who says you know i heard you guys chuckling about accommodations just so you know can you stop doing that because i have one. Oh, i didn't know you have- okay sorry sorry you know and then maybe they go to class and someone says something about accommodations and the person goes excuse me accommodations help people be successful to graduation excuse me, you know, what was it? 79, whatever that number was of words, right? Maybe they're advocating. Maybe I'm not an athlete, but then someone, I hear someone being called a dumb jock in class and someone's, wait, come on guys, seriously, dumb jock, seriously, something has to come out. It would be preferable if the person who's receiving the bullying is able to do it, but if they have a resource or a support person nearby that's gonna do it for them until they can do it for themselves, that's how you change the climate and culture of both education and higher education. Tolerance should not be synonymous with both. Tolerance is what we're, the endurance, yes, and the tolerance level is just palpable, right? About how much we ask students to endure throughout a day, a week, a month, a year, times four. And at Drexel, we have co-op. So times five, right? For four right. or five years. And then, you know, layer that with tuition costs. You know, that's a lot of tolerance that we're asking students to bear. There's a chapter in the book that speaks to edu- a bonus chapter that talks for educators. Yeah. So the majority of the book, even students are encouraged to read the chapter for the educators. For the educators, I'm saying, listen, if you do nothing else and you buy this book and just read that chapter, 
You need to understand all those intersections that are sitting in your class. What you can do, you know, if someone challenges you on something. I wrote what's called a glossary of terms, Cameron. And they're terms that students, Gen Zs, late millennials for graduate students, that they understand these terms, non-binary. You know, I was raised in a very binary world. It was up, down, tall, short, on, off, right? Yeah. I had to learn to understand, okay, non-binary, you know, pronouns. People were terrified at our university about pronouns, terrified, right? Um, you know, what does it mean to be, you know, what is trans, does, does, does trans mean they had an operation? I mean, they don't even know what these terms really mean because the faculty are of an age where it wasn't a part of their, you know, culture, if you will, growing up. Absolutely. And so I generated a glossary of terms to say, faculty, seriously, if you don't know these things, then sit down somewhere with a glass of wine or whatever your favorite beverage is and read this glossary of terms that I generated for you. So when you sit in class and someone says, you know, I have multiple intersections, you're not like, oh, yeah, okay, thank you. You're going to be like, oh, intersections. I read that yesterday. That means, you know, they have multiple, you know, multiple aspects of themselves. Got it. You know, it's not anything to be feared. Right. So instead, with the combination of seeking to change the culture of how we educate, it's almost a military experience. Thank you, sir. Can I have another? You know, it's yeah. almost a military experience, right? You don't ask, don't question me. And maybe the expectation you grew up with was don't challenge your peer. I mean, challenge your adults or don't challenge persons in power. You get in class and someone says something, you, the faculty you don't say anything. And you don't say anything well, Monday, and, and let's also Tuesday, face it, Friday. especially, you know, for your first couple years in college, you're coming out of high school where the dynamic between teachers and students is very different than college professors and students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, it, you know, you don't, <laughs> I find people don't tend to find their voice till about junior year. Um, mm -hmm. I never had that problem i had my voice from the word you were go. out you were out two and a half. <laughs> yeah so i was i had my uh, i had my voice from the word go um but yeah the and so i think it's really hard because especially those first two years are so hard um because mm -hmm. there's so much to do exactly all these extra to classes do, to comprehend to endure, yeah yeah and there's so something yeah, there's something called the first year myth. It used to be called freshman myth, but I don't know mm -hmm. if you're aware or not, but we don't say first freshman anymore. It's first year. So yeah. the first year myth, right? You look at the laptop and your parental entities are somewhere nearby. And you're trying to figure out that college to go to. And what do you see on that laptop? This great courtyard, you know, this this great grass. And you see students with backpacks on and they're smiling and they're so happy to be there. And then no one tells you how to navigate that credit card that you, that you maybe get for the first time in your life that has your name on it. No one, again, no one tells you how to navigate when these things happen in class and you don't have your first five words prepared. Nobody tells you, you know, how to navigate those parties so I don't overdrink, underdrink, overeat, undereat, you know, those kinds of things. So no one tells you, but the first year myth is that it's all going to be good. You're okay. Everybody else is a, is a first year too. You guys will all be fine. Prefrontal cortexes do not fuse, Cameron, until they're almost 21, 22, some, some people. Yeah. So you can't expect people to be, they're going to do whatever they want to do because they're 16, 17, 18, 19. That's just what the brain tells you. Go try it. You'll be all right. You know, how many students drive drunk? Oh, I'm not going to hit a tree. That other person must have been a knucklehead. And then next thing you know, they hit a tree, right? It's like, oh, it won't, it's, it's like the Teflon society. But there's one thing I want to also impress upon you about this book, about this premise. I always say to people, this book is for all students, 
all students that walk this earth, all students, and everybody hears me say marginalized or minoritized students. They don't hear me say all. So on, it's literally on the back of the book, it says, are you a member of a majority, minoritized or marginalized group? I start with majority. You know why? They're the least often, like you said um, earlier, you gave me a scenario where you were saying, this is the this is the person who picks on most people in class because yeah. they're usually the persons who get the least attention because they don't, because now that there's other entities in class, they get more attention because somewhere it says, we've got to make sure that we pass these people and we got to make sure we get them graduated. We want to have good retention rates. So we yeah. sort of stop looking at the other groups that are really the majority group. And when I say all, and this is a, a, a data point that I had to bring up to one group that couldn't understand what I meant by all. And I said, listen, 16 to 24 year old white males are who were shooting up malls, churches, schools, right? Family members. Research says, data shows 16 to 24 year old white males. I hazard to guess that between high school and college, we are gonna meet 16 to 24 year old white males. Don't tell me they're not in pain because they are. They are in pain. That is a subject I have been writing about for 10 years. And oh, great. It, and I, Share I, that with I, me, please. No, well, it's basically when in my first book, I uh, there was two essays I wrote together. One was called The Death of the White Christian Heteronormative Narrative. Um, and the other one, whose title I can't think of right now, but I'll, the substance of it is that, um, is that <laughs> I, I basically was two essays to say, we have this crisis. Oh, it was the missing 10 million men. And I said, mm. we have this economic crisis in education. We have this in employment all this type of thing. And we have, you know, this class event really kind of missing from society. And, and that has profound impacts on, I mean, we lose probably a half a point of GDP a year when they don't work. Um, you know, education wise, it has warped the dating market because women are outpacing men in education and educated mm -hmm, women absolutely. tend not to want to date uneducated men. So that has really warped the dating market a great deal um mm -hmm. and we also uh we also have you know this mental health crisis and this leads to very unfortunately political radicalization um usually on on yeah. the right and and i having seen having traveled in those circles and seen some of those guys get into that and a few come out and all this type of thing it's kind of, really it's kind of this quiet crisis Yes. that no one's really talking yes. about and we never have the, this type of conversation until That's someone right. shot up a church a synagogue a school you know all a of these. yes right? you know exactly we don't really exactly. have those conversations to say you know well why is it you know why aren't young men going to university anymore or you know why are you know why are mm -hmm. we having these profound mental health crises and i think it's one of those things and this is where and this is where i think college can be helpful is that's usually a group that is deemed to be doing okay and doesn't need support. That's right. That's that right. And what do they do? They the do truth. the evaluation side to side. I say, why are they getting so much more stuff? How come I'm not getting that stuff? And someone goes, you don't need it. Stop it. And the next thing you know, there goes the mall. There goes the church. There goes the school. There goes the family members, right? Because right. again, the prefrontal cortex will have you do things you thought you'd never do. And then you layer frustration, pain, anxiety, sadness, and then you're going to be put off like to your face. You know, someone's getting services or resources that you want. 
I mean, that'll make you scale the capital and building, even, right? And even, and even if you're in them, even if you're in that, you know, majority with the with the privileges that go along with that, there might be of your ten intersections a couple that apply to you. First generation would be a big one. I grew up Absolutely. in Northwest Arkansas with lots of white, normal white dudes who were the first in my family. I've been friends Absolutely. with they were the first in their family. You know, did not come from educated people. All this type of thing. Um, you know, when you talk about food insecurity, economic issues, because they don't come from educated people and they're first in the family, oftentimes they're doing this on their own. You especially see this yep. with military guys um, yes. who will go yes. into the military, get the college money. They're the first in their family. They don't come from educated people. And they're just kind of sort of trying to figure it out with That's what right. money or not the military has or has not given them all this type of thing. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um and so that is an area for support as well. But oftentimes Absolutely. our institutions aren't looking and saying, you know, hey, Robert, who just did three years in the Marines and is finally getting your education, what type of support structure do you need? Because right. you're the first in your family and, right. you know, you've never walked past a college campus before in your life. Right. Um, let let alone um, stopped in, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. exactly. You're, Cameron, you're, you're absolutely correct. And the thing about it, too, I want to make two last really important points is that the book is called Frame Your Degree to, to, to play on the words of, you know, you want to frame your degree. But also, yeah. if you don't know who you are, like I mentioned before, and someone's going to tell you who you are so and treat you accordingly, at the end of the book, the last chapter literally says, let's frame each other. Let's frame who you are. So if I were to, and I asked the students to think about picking whatever kind of frame they like, wooden, metal, Baroque, whatever style they like, um, they can go on the website and talk about the words that are going to be in their frame. And I say, identify who you are. Five words. The book is really an academic journal for them because they write in it. There's exercises. Like they won't show up on Zoom. Well, here's one. But there's exercises that are in the book. So they can't read the book and then give it to someone else because they've written all over it. They've doodled, they've highlighted, they've entered person's names, maybe in the family, maybe their own. And that's under encouragement. I want them to do that, right? By the time they get to the last chapter, I ask them to frame themselves. And I literally mean, if you put your, pic your picture in the frame, and I type all this in the, in the book, and then kind of like watermark yourself away, it's this little faint picture of you. And I want you to put in front of you, who are you? It's not a stagnant list, but identify who you are today. So Cameron, I would say I am competent, confident, flexible, reliable, jokingly tall, I'm humorous, right? Those are the things I would put in front of me. And then I have a chapter in the book that says, don't make me come off mute. Again, a play on words of our teams and Zoom meetings and students being in school, you know, on online. Don't make me come off mute. Because if you step on one of my words and I know I'm competent and you just challenge that, I've got to come off mute. And here come my first five words. If I know I'm flexible and you just challenge that, I've got to come off mute. And here come my first five, five words. So I didn't want to put the frame premise in the beginning of the book. I wanted the students to get to know who they are and get comfortable with their multiple intersections, like your seven, my five, whatever, my four, my three, get comfortable with those. And then the very end, how? Know who you are. That, that list is going to change as you age and grow. But if someone steps on one of your words, be prepared because you framed what you want people to know about yourself. So Cameron, what, what, what would be in, in your frame? Well, I in humorous, certainly, but primarily um industrious. Um no, I 
always tell people I'm not that talented. I just work harder than everyone else. Um, and uh, yeah, humorous, industrious, um, hardworking, which goes along with that, honest, um, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. responsible. I tend to be the leader who's kind of, you know, keeping all the plates spinning. Um, mm -hmm. And and also, I think uh, a bit of a, a leader slash speaker, I tend to voice things other people are not willing to say. Um, Excellent. Excellent. And if somebody were to challenge yeah. something like that, you would be yeah. now prepared to be like, hey, 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 excuse me, but no, 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 uh -uh, we're not doing that today. I am, you know, I know I, you know, so, but some students that are young and never had to speak up like that won't say it. They'll just feel that they should have said it and they'll be, you know, sad about it or angry about it. Right. And the last oh, point absolutely. I make, yeah, the last point that I make is I want students to be successful when I'm not around. One mm. of the students on Amazon left a, um, a paraphrase of that. And the mother was the one putting the review in, even though her son's holding the book next to his face and smiling. But she said, oh, I got this book for my son and he's really enjoying it. And I said to him, you know, um, how is it for you? I bought it for you. How's it going? He goes, oh, yeah, I really like it. And he goes, she's very endearing. And the mother wrote, being, wrote, my son has never used the word endearing. Like, I don't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> so she said, this is all up on Amazon on, on the reviews. And it says, why did you use that word? And he said, he paraphrased me and he said, because she said, I want you to be happy when I'm not there. Yes, that's exactly right, student who read the book. That's exactly right. I'm not going to be next to you to prompt you to use your five words, first five words. I'm not going to be there to help you pick the words for your frame. But if you go through the book, you're going to be better for it. And you're going to know that I am there with you. I'm just not right next to you. So having magical. students be successful in my absence is my goal. That is that is magical. Well, we've reached that type time of the show. Mm -hmm. This has been such a good conversation. But we've reached that time of the show where we do plugs and we'll find out where we can catch up with you online. So let us Perfect. know where we can get the book and how we can stay in touch. So this is, I'll hold it back up again, although it's kind of surrounding me here, but I'll hold it up for closer for the view. So Frame Your Degree. How to Avoid Pain While Seeking a College Degree is available on Amazon. It is a bestseller in six categories, so it won't be hard to find. When you start typing in Frame Your Degree, it's going to pop up. You can also go to the website, www.frameyourdegree.org. I made these early, so I wouldn't know one would steal my term, you know, my uh, names. And then also the email is frameyourdegree at gmail.com. So whether you want to reach out to me through the book and, you know, connect that way or go to the website, you're going to learn oh, on the website, you'll be able to see my TED talk. My TED talk that I filmed about four months ago is called Pain, Pain, Go Away. So some of the things that we talked about today, you'll be able to, to use that if you want to use the TED talk for different instances. And on the website, you can also inquire about me coming out and doing uh, presentations for your school, church, synagogue, um, you know, area, community. Um, I'm doing one this weekend for 250. I did one last week when for a uh, weekend for 300 students. So people are reaching out and saying, yeah, you you have to get here because only you can say it the way that you're saying it. And this week, next week, actually, my daughter's going to support me and I'm going to a recording studio in Louisville, Kentucky. Don't know why my publisher picked Louisville, Kentucky, but I'm going to be recording the book. So it'll be available as an audio book on Amazon shortly and as well on Audible. 
Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Cameron Journal podcast. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners. So please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you.